She inspires, educates, and informs. She talks the talk and walks the walk. She doesn't tell you what to think. She just wants you to. She's Mrs. Green. And this is Mrs. Green's World on the Mrs. Green's World Network. And now, Mrs. Green. Welcome, everybody. I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, and you are listening to Mrs. Green's World, an inspirational and informative place where we don't tell you what to think. We just want you to. And trust me when I say we are going to give you some really important information to think about today and decide about the impact it may or not be having on your life and the life of those you love. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to the sponsor of this show, Tucson Medical Center. To me, it is most impressive that for over 70 years, members of the greater Tucson and Southern Arizona community have counted on TMC to be here for all of us when we are at our most vulnerable. They have been entrusted with this legacy and they continue the tradition of improving the health and well-being of the people of Southern Arizona in innovative and impactful ways. And by that, I mean, they're not just treating problems. They're into prevention and health and so many other aspects of wellness. And it is also of great significance that TMC is Tucson's locally governed nonprofit regional healthcare provider. Translation, critical decisions that impact patients and in turn the health and well-being of our community are made at the local level and that cannot be overemphasized. So needless to say Mrs. Green's World is, a pr- is proud of our partnership and appreciate their support of our mission and vision and are appreciative of all the great work they do for the community and the planet. planet. To find out more about them you can visit tmcaz.com and you will be really pleasantly surprised at all of the kinds of services they provide. Very, very important show today concerning a topic, as I mentioned at the beginning, that impacts all of our lives in one way or the other. Anesthesia and opioids, what we need to know. Joining me in studio are two people who are going to answer some very important questions for all of us and are in the know. They have a great deal of experience in addressing these two topics. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Robin Cloth and Dr. Nisan Marietta from Old Pueblo Anesthesia. They have been serving the Tucson community for over 25 years. They employ over 40 physicians who are board certified or board eligible by the American Society of Anesthesiology. Every year, their staff cares for over 20,000 patients. That is a big number that are having surgery, labor and delivery, pain management, or diagnostic procedures. And they are the exclusive provider of anesthesia services at TMC. So welcome to both of you. I wish we had been recording our off-air conversations, and I'm going to do my best to capture it because of what... You know, important things you had to say about, mostly about the opioid crisis, but um, these are not only timely but critical topics because we're, you know, we're all impacted by them. Nobody dodges that bullet. You either get anesthesia in your lifetime or you know someone who does. And um, let's start out with, I think there's a fear among many of us of, you know, being put under. What does that mean and what are you doing? And people get angst at a time when you want to be calm and have your body be doing all the right things so that everything goes well. Um, I want to know what's happening to me. I want to be in the hands of someone I can trust. So can you demystify that 
a, a bit because, in fact, I don't know anyone who ever had any bad effects or anything was messed up. I'm so blessed with, from anesthesia. So it's a, an irrational fear or, you know, both of you talk to that demystification of anesthesia. So I think the fear is a result of a loss of control because you're literally handing your life over to someone else and they are responsible for every breath that you take, every beat of your heart. And so you have a you have autonomy in choosing the surgeon that you want to have, but then you suddenly the day of surgery you come in and you have to give all that control to someone else. So it's the unknown and then also, you know, on TV they always have they always um talk about awareness or things that are super super rare but it's exploited. And so that's what people are always afraid of. I'm going to be awake during surgery or all the bad stuff that rarely ever happens. Or I'm not going to wake up. Rob, exactly. do you have anything to add to that? Well, I'm always surprised that people seem to be more afraid of the anesthesia than of the surgery. It always makes me laugh a little bit because I'm not the one with the knife, right? But it's true. We, we're very unknown. People don't know what we do. The medications that we give them are very unfamiliar. We don't know how to explain to them exactly how these medications work. But anesthesia as a specialty has made huge strides in safety over the last 40 or 50 years to the point where serious complications really are vanishingly rare. So I'm glad to hear that your experience bears that out. It's irrational. Minor complications, things like nausea after surgery, those sorts of things certainly happen. You know, not everybody wakes up feeling great, but a lot of that has to do with the procedure that they had, some of the pre-existing conditions that they came to the hospital with. But by and large, anesthesia is very, very safe. But what I usually tell people is they're at more risk from having a car crash on the way into the hospital than have something serious happen to them under anesthesia. And that has to assuage fears. I mean, that's a really great one to say. Your, your risk factor is so minuscule. So are there different kinds of anesthesia? Anesthesia. I mean, I, I'm so old that, and I was hospitalized several times when I was young for kidney problems. And the first two times I got gas, ether. Talk about being happy when I could get an injection. I was like, and I was only like seven and eight. It's like I was begging the doctor because there was an age limit. But in terms of anesthesia now, are there many different kinds? The, the, the things that were going on in my head preparing for the show is what you all need to know because our lives are in your hands. I mean, it, it's not easy. You don't just, you know, shoot something in somebody's arm. So are there different kind of anesthesia? What do you have to factor in when you're getting ready to, to take someone's life in your hands and put them under safely and appropriately? So there's basically four types of anesthesia, and I'll start from the most basic, which is just local anesthetic. And this is usually for areas, small areas on your body, like a finger, a laceration, um, a small hand procedure. And there they just inject, inject local medication, like when you go to the dentist's office right. to numb up the area. Right. Um, and then there's regional anesthesia, where you can either get a spinal, which is an injection into your spinal fluid, and it makes an area below... You know, it can it can it's often used for C sections or abdominal surgeries or lower extremity surgeries, and it makes that area numb for a period of time, just for a few hours, um, and that's usually for specific. I mean, and you can be awake for that too, right? Right. Or you can get another type of regional anesthesia as a nerve block, and that is when a nerve or a nerve bundle is targeted and bathed with local anesthetic, 
and it numbs it up. You can have it for surgery um, and you can be awake for your surgery or it can be used for post-op analgesia or post-op pain. Got it. Mm -hmm. And you can be awake for that or you can also get a little medication if you don't want to be completely awake. Um, and then we have monitor anesthesia care, which is sedation. This is often used for colonoscopies, EGD, small procedures. And um, you the range of sedation varies. So you can be talking. You might not remember very much, or you can be completely out of it. But um, there's usually just oxygen and IV sedation, and there's always someone monitoring you. And then there's general anesthesia, which is used for surgeries that require a deep plane of anesthesia and often paralysis to assist the surgeon with um, creating a field of that is acceptable for them to operate on. And that, uh, you go to sleep with IV medication, there are monitors on, there's often airway, so you can get a laryngeal mask airway, which is, sits in front of your larynx into your trachea, or you can get an endotracheal tube or a breathing tube in. That goes in after your sleep and comes out before your sleep unless you it's indicated that you need to keep keep it in. But that is um, what most patients probably get and in, in what they associate with an anesthesiologist and getting anesthesia. Right, it is so true. You just don't even think of, of you know, getting your, thumb, your, your face numbed for a, a root canal as anesthesia. It's just a whole different concept. I think it's the going to sleep part that, that gets people um, a little bit jazzed up before that happens. What about... And I know we don't have enough time to go into this because it's par probably a large part of what you learned in medical school. But what factors do you look at when deciding, you know, what to administer and how much and for how long? Is it age? Is it body weight? Is it, you know, if they're if they have a heart condition? What kind of things are there? Some major things that you can explain to me that you consider in deciding how to administer and what. In what way? All those things factor in. And then all of the things that Dr. Marietta was talking about as far as your choices depend on what type of procedure you're having done. Not every type of anesthetic is appropriate for every type of procedure. Your surgeon gets to weigh in on that too because some surgeons aren't comfortable with certain types of anesthesia. If your procedure is going to be long, even if it's not a particularly painful procedure, um, one instance that comes to mind is like an MRI scan, which is not a painful procedure. There's no surgeon involved, of course, but many people can't tolerate being in the scanner. It's a small hole. The scans can last an hour or longer, and many right. people require some medication for that. So that depends on what you can tolerate, You know what your fears are, what you're able to do to calm yourself. Sometimes we end up doing general anesthetics for those, even though it's not a painful procedure at all. It's but just people literally have panic attacks. Right. My exactly. friend is one of them. She started going in and exactly. she left. She couldn't handle the small right. enclosure. It's very I just, claustrophobic. I'm just kind of happy in there because there's no email, there's no texting, sure. there's no <laughs> there's no tweeting. Right. It's like, yeah, that's I can get to a happy place there, but it's different for everybody. But medical, your medical conditions, your age, your weight, all of those things definitely factor in. So, you know, the first time we meet a patient is often just a few minutes before their procedure. At TMC, um, patients will go to, most patients will go to our pre-anesthetic clinic and get screened. So we have the opportunity to look in the electronic medical record and start to familiarize ourselves with patients a bit before we meet them. But typically, 
patients will meet their anesthesiologists just shortly before surgery. So it's very important that we can learn as much about you during those few minutes as possible so that we know everything that might impact your anesthetic because there are a number of things, genetic conditions, you know, other medical problems, your preferences, all of those things factor in. We need to know as much about you and you need to know as much as you can about what we're planning to right, do so that right. you trust us. You had a chance to meet with your surgeon and talk to them, hopefully at least a couple of times before surgery. You get those few minutes to meet us, trust us, and decide that you know, you're willing to put your life in our hands. Right. And so we take right. that responsibility very, very seriously. But every anesthetic is tailored to every patient. I don't know that I've ever given the exact same anesthetic twice. I'm sure Dr. Marietta feels the same way. It's, it, well, it's really an art. You need to know. That's what blew me away. It's like I'm, when I was prepping for the show, I get very excited when it's something that's so critical to our lives and our health. And I thought how much you need to know and what responsibility there is in your hands. And, you know, I had, I've been put under once, twice. And the last time I really wanted to talk to the anesthesiologist, and I did. And he said, you know, we play music and on and on. And I said, will you play some songs that I like? And he did. And I could hear it. And it was kind of like it made it a happy spot for me because I was going to hear music that I loved. And we laughed. But just meeting him assuaged my fears and realizing, you know, what he was coming to the table with was a heartfelt commitment that I'm in and out and it's fine. So it was really great. Those, those 15 minutes that you have before can really make someone feel so much better. Yes. It's, you want it's to, short it but meaningful down. interactions. Right. And then you, I also take in consideration the medications that they take. And what's really interesting is redheads need a little bit more anesthesia too. So sometimes I can <laughs> see a little glimmer She's of red hair. And I'm like, are you a natural redhead? Because they, it is a known fact that they need more anesthesia. And true. young teenagers I love it. Robust. And I am. I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm hard to put down, I would think. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I've got, I think I have 10 adrenal glands. So what are, are do you have some tips or hints for our listeners that help does take their fears away, like talking to you or researching, what would you say to people that listen? We have thousands of listeners that learn things from the show. What would you say to them? Here's a couple of things you can do so that you're not afraid because in your fear, it increases your heart rate. I mean, all kinds of things. So what's some, some doctor's advice on taking those fears away before you're you know, in the, in the hospital room? It depends on the person. Some people like to know more, and there's be my one precaution. There is just be very careful where you get your information. Um, the American Society of Anesthesiologists have patient information on their website that's divided up in categories. So anesthesia in younger patients, older patients, different types of surgery. And that's a great place to start to get some information that our society has put out to help manage expectations. Um, going to YouTube would probably not be my favorite recommendation. That is such a great answer. Trust your source. <laughs> know your source. What a great answer, Robin. I'm telling you. I went on Google the other night. I had a swollen leg. And by the time it was over, I thought, um, you know, it's probably going to have to get amputated. I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but it was like, and nothing was wrong. It was an aberration and it went away in two days. But know your source. 
There are there are some great sources on the internet, um, but <laughs> not there are YouTube. Also I wish people could have seen really your face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the statistic for dying in anesthesia is two in one hundred thousand. <sighs> so the chances of you getting hit by lightning are much more likely. Right. And remember that. So, and that's interesting to say. I mean, it was a great answer. Everybody has different fears. And for me, having the doctor say he'd play my music, some people might not want any music. So it's it's learning about it is. And some people, you know, they are claustrophobic. So if you if you are able to communicate the things that make you anxious, that really helps too, because mm-hmm. then we'll make the mask a little bit looser. I've even put essential oils in the mask. Love that. And with kids, we used to have to give them pre medication orally just to make them relax but now the ipad has really transformed that so they will go to sleep and just play with the ipad and they're breathing in the anesthesia yes it's amazing we should create games for adults too (laughs) it's remarkable and for some kids it's like a treat because you know usually they have a designated allotment of how much ipad time they can have but then they come to the hospital and they get to play with it before and while they're going to sleep I had no idea. I think that's the biggest shocker I've We have great <clears throat> child life specialists. And we actually, you OPA uh, donated this Corvette that these kids can drive. And they get their own driver's license and a Polaroid picture. And so, I mean, we try to make it as fun as possible for them. That is not like when I was in the hospital at seven years old, even though I had great doctors who were very good to me. But we, first of all, iPad, come on. It was 50 years ago. Yeah. So um, not happening 60 years ago. But we're not going to talk about that. What is the difference? So let's segue into children. I would think it's a very different approach or is it? Is it the same factors and what else do you have to be aware of and and consider when you're dealing with children? A kid's physiology is very different. They're built differently than we are. So medications, um, doses, all of that is very different. So we start based on weight, but age also makes a difference. The maturity of a child at a certain age definitely impacts. But the biggest thing, I mean, just as far as going off to sleep is obviously most kids are not going to be happy to have an intravenous anesthetic right. start. So right. most adults, like your experience with ether, you know that as an adult, going off to sleep with an injection is much, much, much easier than going off to sleep with a gas mask. Oh. Things have improved since ether. (laughs) It's much more palatable than it used to be, but it's still very scary and unfamiliar for kids, and especially at certain ages when it's hard to explain to them. So we do still have pre-medications available, like Dr. Marietta was saying, but for many kids, um, distractions, you know, our child life specialists that provide the iPad also can blow bubbles with the kids and play games with the kid and help them to be comfortable in an environment that's really very unfamiliar and can be scary. But there are lots of different considerations that come into mind with children. Um, We certainly have a more limited repertoire of things that we can do with children under anesthesia because sedation isn't usually a good option with children because you may make them comfortable but you may not be able to make them still and able to tolerate a procedure. Regional anesthesia is much more limited in the child because we, in adults, we do that typically under very, very minor amounts of sedation so that we can get some feedback as an enhanced safety mechanism. So our options in kids, we do still have options for regional anesthesia, but we take our responsibilities very, very seriously in kids. Um, savvy parents these days know that there have been some studies 
come out recently in animals showing that anesthesia is essentially not good for the developing brain. And how that translates to human children hasn't really been proven yet, but we certainly can't discount those studies. Right. And take it very seriously. It's it's very encouraging to me, very, that you talked about the use of essential oils. Um, I was mentioning to you one of our partners, affiliate partners um, in syndication, is a woman named Pat Rulo in Ohio. She has something called Speak of Radio and specializes in health. And she and I spoke at length this week, and she said that the Joint Commission is actually now more strongly encouraging kind of alternative therapies and she said they haven't come out and endorsed like oh use essential oils for mitigating your exposure to MRSA but there's one hospital that's working with her that she is a believer and she you know she's a healthcare administrator that it's it's going to they're going to prove that it helps minimize your risk in the hospital we don't need to get into that and I wouldn't ask two doctors to comment but it was encouraging to me because I do believe there are some alternative things out there that are not quacky and not quirky that we, I hope, can continue to look at because look where we are with um, prescription drugs and, and right. you know, the It certainly world. doesn't hurt. It's not very expensive. And um, our women's surgery center, they often use a humidifier and put a lavender peppermint. Lavender, And then yes. it helps with nausea. Right. So, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, it's not going to hurt, so it makes patients feel better, right. and especially if they're requesting it or that's they're a strong believer of it, I'm happy to try it. And in kids' masks, we have different flavors, so they can choose bubble gum, watermelon, so that when they're inhaling the anesthetic, <laughs> they get to you know choose a flavor. And it's they a happy have a thought. Pina colada one too. <laughs> it is, and the olfactory senses we know are are rooted really, really deeply in our experiential memory, so. If that's a happy memory, you know, smelling bubble gum brings up happy associations. Right. I'm all for it. Because then you just calm down and the brain works. But I've had that, a few kids lick the mask, so I'm like, it doesn't taste very good. <laughs> yeah, especially if there's any essential oils. That's pretty um, awful. So what about... Um, Seniors, I you know, there's kind of like to me, there's the kids, and then there's the massive amount of people in you know who aren't kids but aren't seniors yet. I don't even know what a senior is anymore. Fifty and over, sixty-five and over. I just know that I get my discount now because I'm sixty-seven. <laughs> but is there a whole different protocol? And you know, I want to ask a very articulate question, but. There are so many different health factors when it comes to older people, their hearts and their diabetes and on and on and on. What do you have to know and consider when you're, you know, working with seniors, of which there are many in our region? So the beauty of kids is that at that, you know, when they when they come for a procedure, they almost hardly ever have any medical ailments. The right. opposite is true when you're a lot older. Right. So we do have to take in consideration the medical conditions they have. And as you get older, your metabolism, your GFR, which is your glomerular filtration rate of your kidneys decreases. A lot of the medications are metabolized through your kidney. So a little bit goes a long way. And also, I sometimes you give benzodiazepines beforehand and pre-op before you go back to as an anxiolytic. I do not give those in older patients because it's 
contributes to um, delayed emergence and delirium. So those are things I take in consideration. I tend to use drugs that come off a little bit faster in older patients, and I listen to their concerns. I mean, I, I just took over a patient yesterday, and she asked me, oh, like, if, you know, is this anesthesia exposure going to long-term cause any cognitive dysfunction? And, and that is a real concern um, in elderly in elderly patients because it is a known side effect that can happen. It's usually with cases that are emergent or cardiac cases, and it's the known risk factor is having baseline dementia um, because as... They have shown animal studies have caused neuroapoptosis, which is cell death in neurons. It also shows that perhaps it can contribute that in the elderly. So things that diseases such as neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, those can actually worsen perhaps with anesthesia for a very long period of time. And I'm, I'm one of those people that got to observe it with my mom. She broke her hip and she was in the early onset of Alzheimer's. And it, the recovery, I mean, it really did, it, it was very impactful in ways. She was more confused and it really exacerbated it or accelerated it or whatever the proper term is. So, but there wasn't really, you know, she got great care. She was a TMC. She had a severe hip fracture. It was like fractured in seven places. So the pain she was in was not you know, it was not acceptable. So I understand, but it, you have to weigh those factors. Yeah, I see it most commonly in my hip fracture patients. So I always tell the families you know, for the next, it can last, so delirium lasts for a few weeks and then post-cognitive dysfunction can last for a few months. Yeah, um, yep. But besides the anesthesia, it's the physiologic changes that occur. It's the pain that they have. It's the pain medications they get. It's the lack of sleep. And so early reorientation is really important for those patients. So being in a familiar environment, um, you know, having familiar faces, familiar voices, getting enough sleep, being oriented to time and place and day, that those are all things that really help. And having your hearing aids so you can communicate and be active participants, having your glasses so that you can see, those things all help. It's unbelievable and how impressed I am that you guys look at that whole factor because again, you know, I, everybody personalize it. What does it mean to my life? And my mom had um, a hearing aid and she had a radical mastoidectomy so one ear was totally hollow and if she didn't have that, I mean, the fear factor is so, so accelerated and heightened. I mean, it's pretty incredible. And what about for people you know, like me, that I'm not, I have one little tiny Synthroid pill I take. Um, age is a factor, is weight a factor? Like what, I hope I'm not facing it, but if I am, I know two people now that I'm going to ask for <laughs> and feel really good about that. Um, and I'm barely kidding. But what, what kind of things should I be asking when I go in? You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's, it does matter. Um, even a healthy 67-year-old is different from a healthy 40-year-old who's different from a healthy 20-year-old. And each individual is different as well. You know, it just... And I'm a redhead. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And all of those things definitely make a difference. But it's it's kind of a bell curve in how you respond to medications. I suspect that at some point in time, we'll be able to genetically map everybody and get a better idea of how you'll respond to medications. We know now that redheads respond, um, but there are other things that 
in your day-to-day life that may affect how you respond to medications. I find that people who have a few glasses of wine with dinner tend to respond differently to certain medications than people who are teetotalers. It's just something that we have to take it's into so effect. complex it really is you guys have to know <laughs> a lot and it's so telling that you are the exclusive providers for tmc i mean it speaks to their you know their standards i mean i'm a i know they're a sponsor but they are a true partner and i'm out in the community everywhere and just seeing the work they do i always like to give them high praise you know who are you hanging around with and they're hanging around with you and that really matters a lot well one thing i did want to mention is that in the hospital is not the only place where you may encounter anesthesia and when we're talking about older people we're talking about sedation for things like Um, colonoscopies and endoscopies and in kids we're talking about dental anesthesia and it's really important that you ask who's giving that anesthesia and who's monitoring because in many places it's the person who's doing the procedure and you know Dr. Marietta and I come with some very strong biases about how anesthesia should be provided of course based on our training and our background Um, we feel like we do a great job in keeping people safe. And many, many people who aren't anesthesiologists, of course, also can provide an anesthetic that's very, very safe. But there have been some important things that have happened, especially in pediatric dental anesthesia. Um, there's some legis- new legislation in California that I hope will spread elsewhere. There was, in 2017, a young boy, that healthy young boy who was receiving what was essentially a general anesthetic from his dental oral surgeon and died under anesthesia. And that just shouldn't happen because there was no one to monitor him. There was no one who knew how to respond when when his airway became compromised. And that's what we do for a living. So I kind of take those stories personally. Um, So I think it's really, really important for someone who's having a procedure that requires an anesthetic that might not be in the hospital to just ask. You know, these can be done safely, but you need to know who's doing it, who's monitoring, what are you going to do if something goes wrong. You want someone who is solely dedicated to monitoring you um, because you can't do both well. You can't be the procedurist and the person who's monitoring your vital signs. You can't focus on both simultaneously. And to me, you know, the tagline for our show is we don't tell you what to think. We just want you to. And I want to press pause here for all of our listeners. And for me, thinking about this, it is the most important piece in terms of getting you in and out safely of, of a, you know, having anesthesia. And I didn't think about the dental piece because if you're a dentist, that is not your specialty. I don't care how good a dentist you are. That is not what you went to school for. And that is such a good point that I wouldn't even think about. And fortunately, I don't have any young children that I'll have to worry about, but it's great to pass on to my children who will have children and say to them and my daughter who already has two um, that, you know, know your procedure when it comes to your teeth because it's it's a big deal. Thank you for bringing that up. I think it's really... Um, yeah. If anyone wants more information on that, it's Caleb's Law for the California legislation. They can learn a little bit more about that. Just Google oral Caleb's surgeons, Law. They do get usually six months of anesthesia training, but we get three years and we, we do kids, adults, ICU. So the knowledge and the experience is... You know, six months is 
doesn't give you the breath of what we experience. Right, right. So it's, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's more than three years, though. I mean, we, just so people understand what, where we are coming from, we have four years of an undergraduate education, we have four years of medical school, and then four years of residency training, three years of which is specifically anesthesia training. So it's a 12-year process to get to where we are today. So not yeah. just not yeah. just three years. <laughs> no, and I, the funny things that pop into your mind, like that's a really big student loan. <laughs> when you think it can be. It. <laughs> it can be. I mean, it's it's a really uh, it's a factor that that comes into play. Um, so for parents, it's the advice of asking questions, really educating yourself about what's going to happen to your children. I would think that TMC is so good about that. I mean, we've had so many great guests about the support they give to anyone that comes in in in-house, you know, that's inpatient. And for it's for yourself, educate yourself, not on YouTube. <laughs> Make sure that you know what's going on because don't, you know, to me, the worst thing you can do is just think you have to check your rights at the door and the doctor knows everything. That's a very fearful place as far as I'm concerned because you're an expert in your own body and there might be things or maybe. Um, the other thing I want to kind of comment on is, you know, I think we expect doctors to be miracle workers. The body is so complex and has so many moving parts. And I just say, you know, we're all complex carbohydrates. And when it comes to this, it's it's... It's it's not just an art, it's such a science in trying to figure it out. 12 years of school, I mean, of learning and on and on, I'm sure continuing. I would assume it's quite a dynamic field now more than ever with changes. It definitely is. Um, we all do a lot of continuing medical education to keep up. There have been, in the course of my career, I mean, incredible changes. The advent of ultrasound that's available at the bedside has revolutionized what we can do with regional anesthesia. That wasn't available when I trained, um, but we've been able to learn it on the job at TMC. We have five, six bedside ultrasounds available so that we really have a huge armamentarium of regional anesthetics that we can offer people, um, which are great for opioid sparing as well as, you know, just simple pain relief for procedures, giving people options for their anesthetic as well as their pain control afterwards. So that as just as one example, that's been a huge development during just the course of my career. And how do you, I mean, like, is one way of being educated just by um, the drug companies and the drug reps coming in and letting you know what's new on the market? How do you continue your education in a really credible and, you know, consistent way? Because it is so dynamic. It's not learn this and here's how it goes. Like, you know, some procedures that are pretty much, I guess there's no routine procedure. But with this, it is so dynamic and there are so many factors. How do you continue your education to stay up on everything. I attend a lot of continuing medical education conferences and I read journal articles too. I try not to rely on drug reps because they often are misleading. They give you, you know, great information, but it's definitely one-sided and it's towards the side of selling the drug. Okay. And do you actually, do you, do you have that in your firm? Do you have people that come to meet with you directly or do you have people that, you know, there's a, do you have a committee that c- comes and 
says to you, okay, here's what we decided. We met with the drug reps or we did the research. How does it work? I'm interested in the internal mechanism because there is so much information and you're busy doing the procedures. We get reps that come to TMC probably once a month, something like that. Um, There haven't been a great deal of new drugs coming out in anesthesia lately. The biggest one that's come out recently is a long-acting an encapsulated local anesthetic. So it's marketed as being a 72-hour local anesthetic injection, which um, definitely has potential. We haven't had a lot of new medications. The reps that come typically are just there for visibility to remind us that their medications are there <laughs> and we use them. And, and you know, we, we take them very lightly, as Dr. Marietta was saying. It's very, very rare that we learn much new from drug reps. Um, sometimes it's a matter of, okay, this is new on the market, like this new medication, and then we all go out and do our own research on it right. to determine awesome. whether it's something that's going to be useful in our practice, partly because anything that's brand new is going to be expensive. So we need to determine if it's worth the cost. Um, but of course, we need to determine if it's going to be something that's safe and valuable for our patients. Okay. And I'd just like to just do a little bit interjection here in case you just joined us. We are having an unbelievable conversation about anesthesia and opioids, what you need to know. And joining us for this hour are Dr. Robin Cloth and Dr. Nisan Marietta from Old Playable Anesthesia. I'd like to do a shout out and I'll do a little bit more about you after our break. Um, Let's go into the opioid conversation. I mean, it it is just, it is one of the most topical conversations in our world, not just the medical community. I mean, it is a crisis. Um, It's being addressed at the national level, the regional level, the local level. So let's get into a little bit of not alt facts, facts versus fiction. Um, How bad is it? These are two long answered questions with long answers. How bad is it? And how did we get here? Those are two. So let's start off with how bad is it? So in 2016, 64,000 people died from an opioid overdose. That's really bad. And that exceeds the amount of American soldiers that died during the entire Vietnam War. So I think everyone can probably say that they know someone (sighs) who's been affected by opioid addiction. And it really started escalating after 1999. And every year it has gotten significantly worse. So what does anybody know what happened in 99? Like, why? Why are we here? That was about the time that we decided that pain needed to be the fifth vital sign. So that was originally a very well-intentioned metric. So... When so, like, added, nobody's going to hurt. No right, pain. Right, <laughs> How <exactly>. realistic <laughs> is that? But we did recognize that pain was being undertreated, and that's certainly a problem. The unfortunate problem that when was, I think, under-recognized was not just that we have under-treated pain, but we have under-treated mechanisms to treat pain. So the quickest and cheapest way to treat pain was to give it a pill. A pill. There's a pill for everything. I mean, it just, yeah, it blows me away. So I had no idea that 1999 that can actually pinpoint it. So there was some type of morphing of people's opinions and we're going to be a pain-free society, which is so realistic, not. (laughs) Well, and shortly after that, it was 2001 that the Joint Commission enacted their pain management standards. And so around that time, then hospitals, other medical facilities, doctors began being judged 
and then subsequently reimbursement got hinged to how well we were treating pain. So we went from under-treating pain to, in many cases, over-treating pain. But in all of it, I think not treating the mechanisms of pain as effectively as we could because opioids don't treat mechanisms of pain. We're learning a great deal today about anesthesia and opioids, what we need to know. And joining us for this hour are Dr. Robin Cloth and Dr. Nisan Marietta from Old Pueblo Anesthesia. And a little bit about our guest. Dr. Cloth received her MD from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, did her residency at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and is certified by the American Board of Anesthesiology. Dr. Marietta received her medical degree from the University of Missouri School of Medicine in Columbia, Missouri. She did her residency at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, and is also certified by the American Board of Anesthesiology. Thank you so much for being here, both of of you and just educating us on something that's really so important and really good to know. And as I said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I might be coming one a little bit, but I have this thought that I carry with me that the drug companies are in fact responsible for a lot of this, maybe not in a malicious way and said, let's get people, but it is a way to make a lot of money. People do get addicted to the drugs. And I don't know if it's safe to even ask you this question. Do you think they're complicit a little bit in where we are today? So in 1996, oxycodone was released and it was advertised and pushed as a non-addictive opioid. Right. And then, in this, of course, you know, there's floodgates like, of all these people prescribing it. And physicians, primary care physicians, internal medicine doctors are the number one prescribers. It's not surgeons, it's not anesthesiologists. And they were under the impression that, you know, this drug is effective and it's not going to be addictive. Miracle drug. And in 2001, oxycodone is the number one selling pain reliever in the United States. Talk about a fast track. Right. And right? you remember that 2001 was when the Joint Commission made their recommendations too. So I, I'm i not a conspiracy theorist either, but it is an incredible coincidence. Right. And then they, the courts have decided that, yes, they did contribute to this crisis. In 2007, Purdue Pharma had to pay $634 million for misbranding their drug as non-addictive and for pushing it. And we, we have suffered because most people don't want to live in pain and the other thing is we trust our doctors. We really do trust our doctors to come forth and help us and get out of it. But sometimes it's better to go through a little pain than be addicted. That Those things, those numbers just absolutely blow me away. I mean, it truly. Um, I want to talk about Ambien for a minute, if I may. It's personal. Um, I took it for years. I thought it was safe. When it first came out, it was touted as it is not physically addictive. That can be psychologically addictive. It put me to sleep. But as time went on, I must have become, I don't have the medical facts for this, but like it wasn't working as well. And so then I started taking a little more and a little more. And finally, my family said to me, do you have any clue what this is doing to you? Because I was exhausted all the time. And that's the part that kind of creeps up on you. I was tired. So if I, you know, if I needed to take a nap, I needed a half of Ambien and wasn't getting rest. Um, that is, I don't even know if it's an opioid, but it, to me, I'm very happy to be open about how it impacted my life and how much better my life is now that I'm off of it. So Ambien, again, 
Drug companies tout it. Doctors prescribed it in record numbers. There's a pill for that, and every night you can go to sleep at 10 o'clock or 10.20 or 10.30, whatever time you want. Just pace yourself. Right. And there's a lot of confusion about some of the terminology. When we're talking about opioids, we're talking about medications like codeine, oxycodone, hydrocodone, heroin. Those are a specific class of medication, pain relievers. When you talk about narcotics, it covers things that are... um, including medications like Ambien, things that have addiction potential. And there's also some confusion around things like addiction and tolerance. Addiction is involves uh, cravings for medications, uh, maybe not something that you identify as a craving like you would identify a craving for chocolate or something like that, but your body depends on it. And it needs it. At a certain time. But then also behavioral issues that go along with it. You know, you may alter your regular habits in order to make sure that you don't do without that medication, things like that. So that's where addiction becomes very dangerous is when people start to alter their behaviors and do things that they wouldn't normally do to obtain these medications who can't function without it, things like that. Tolerance is just essentially a side effect of these medications. The opioid medications, other narcotic medications like Ambien and other benzodiazepines, just the natural history of how those medications work is that your body develops a tolerance to it, meaning you essentially get used to it. It takes more of that medication to get the same effect. It's separate from addiction, but typically goes along with addiction because as you need more and more of those medications, they become harder and harder to manage. People don't tend to become tolerant to side effects, especially opioid medication, some of its serious side effects, the constipation, the respiratory depression, the things that kill people from opioids, those side effects are not that the tolerance to those side effects doesn't develop as quickly to the tolerance of the pain-relieving effects or the mind-numbing effects of those medications. I think I almost fell off the couch when I saw the first commercial that there was a pill for the pills you take for the constipation. So if you're constipated from taking this medication, here's another pill you can take to help take care of that. So like, let's go on the pill train. It's just, I'm sure both of you realize this. I'm trying to limit my exposure to any television these days, but um, the the number of commercials for drugs where it's like Kool-Aid, it's like crack. It's it's constantly put into our consciousness about there's a pill for that, there's an app for that, and now I finally know a good app is an iPad for kids who are going on. <laughs> I love that. That tickles me. But is that, I mean, culturally, how awful? Yeah, we have become a pill-popping nation for- when, rather than, not everyone, because, I mean, pain is real, um, but people want you know, the instantaneous solution. And the and a pill is the easiest way to do that. I did. There's a pill for that. Instead of doing something like, you know, changing your lifestyle, <clears throat> sciatica. Um, if you do your stretches and you do your exercises, it takes away a lot of the pain. And if you don't, it doesn't. But it's harder to do the exercises and be in that routine than take a pill, a pain right. pill. Right. You know, so it's easy. And it has become a cultural phenomenon. Um, the... United States constitutes 
4.6% of the world's population, but we consume 80% of the world's oh, opioids. Robin, this is an American problem. This is an American problem. And there are no drug commercials allowed in Europe. There's no, they, they don't allow it. It's just like cigarette commercials. They don't have it. And what an impact. 80% repeat that statistic for us. I love these facts. It's, yeah, it's, we are 4.6 of the world's population and consume 80% of the world's opioids. Of the drugs and the fight that there will be to stop it because the drug companies, I mean, it's no joke, lobbyist, lobbyist rule. I, I'll never forget, I sat with a guest here and she was working on stem cell research and she went to both the Democratic and the Republican national conventions and she saw the same people at both from the drug companies lobbying to get, you know, who they wanted elected so that the votes would be favorable. So that's really pretty sad. What are you doing both at, at your comp, you know, your company, your partnership with TMC, and as obviously caring people in the community? What's being done here in Southern Arizona to address it, if anything? Well, there's a push nationwide to not just rely on narcotics because or opioids. You will need pain medications after you've had surgery or in your pain, but there are other medications that you can use too. I mean, people forget about anti-inflammatories. Those actually work really well and they target the cause of pain. You can use um, other classes of medications, anti-seizure medications, Lyrica, Gabapentin. Those are often used for neuropathic pain, but they also decrease the amount of pain that you will need payments that you need post-surgically as well. Um, antidepressants. So there's all these different receptors that can contribute to pain. So if you target different ones and you can diminish the amount that each receptor requires, um, really pushing for realistic expectations too. And also, you know, things like ice. Um, Heat. Heat. Stretching. You know, exercise. Sleep, <laughs> rehab. Massage. Um, and then with in terms of anesthesia, there's a big movement to push towards regional anesthesia. So when we, before surgery, uh, we can do a nerve block so that for the first day, if you just do a single shot, you can last for 24 hours. If you have shoulder surgery or arm surgery, that extremity that you had surgery on is numb. And then you can also put catheters in these um, areas that have nerves too. And then there's a ball or it, it, that's infusing local anesthetic. As long as they're infusing medication, that block lasts for that duration. So making it more like in the beginning, have have it be concentrated so that there's not such a need for ongoing um, pain medication to mm -hmm. be administered. It's called preemptive analgesia. So before surgery, I will often give my patients a little bit of medications orally with a small amount of water so that, and these are non-narcotics so that when they wake up, they won't need as much. And Tylenol is really effective. There's actually IV Tylenol um, if patients can't eat anything, which is you know, it works faster. It's a lot more expensive, not necessarily better, but it does work faster. Um, and then regional anesthesia, I really try to push that for patients. And some patients, I had a patient the other day for shoulder surgery. He was like, I really just want pain meds. I was like, you really don't want pain meds though, because this is a really painful procedure. And that is just going to make you sleepy, nauseated, and make you prone to falling. So I convinced him and he was so happy that he did that too. So proactive on your part of educating the patients. I mean, that's another plus that I see. What about, you know, I'm, I'm always intrigued and I get asked a lot as Mrs. Green, what do I do with my old medication? Is pain disposal or medication disposal, is that a factor that our listeners should consider seriously? It is. Um, these are not things that you really want hanging around your house. 
unfortunately, there have been places where there have been break-ins for people looking for medications. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times older people are targeted because they know that they're more likely to have more medications. And family members can do it. Family members, you know, if you have guests in your house, it's a good idea to keep your medication somewhere that's safe. But if you don't need them anymore, by all means, you should get rid of them. Um, in Pima County, the Sheriff's Department will take them. There is a Dispose a Med. They have a website that has sites and locations that where you can pick up, um, that you can look up and drop off medications. They have a medication amnesty, I think twice a year in Pima County. Several Walgreens um, stores, the 24-hour Walgreens will often take unused medications. Just ask your pharmacist where you can get rid of these medications and I know a lot of people like to keep things for a rainy day. You know, you never know. I tweak my ankle. It's really sad that we all do that. Let's hold on to it. I might need it. But medications do expire, um, and there's just no need to keep what's essentially a really dangerous medication around your house if you don't need it. So there are proper ways to dispose them. The worst case scenario, they can be mixed with kitty litter um, and put into the trash. Uh, check before you flush your medications. There are some that should never be flushed. Chemotherapy medications. Pretty much don't flush, yeah, you, I, I would we say. We don't really want that in our no, water supply. We, don't. we really don't. And you <laughs> can't you, filter it out. But if you're desperate, you can. Yeah. If you're desperate. Yeah. And, but try not to. I mean, yeah. it's so much better to put it in the landfill where it's going to be covered up in a number of days than... Um, yeah. flushing it down the toilet. Yeah. Mix it with kitty litter or coffee grounds. E- used kitty litter would be my recommendation. Right. Well, that's really good to know. Another little tip here that they learn on Mrs. Green's world. Um, okay. So I think that's important that we say why is medication. Because um, you also don't want your kids finding it and getting into it. I mean, it's not just dangerous for you, but it's for other people. And to be really aware of that. What about, this is this is a really sensitive one, but I, I talked about Ambien. I know it's not an opioid, but my family helped me and and, and a couple of friends because they could see things that I couldn't because it creeps up on you. You don't real you don't change your behavior like that. But I was you know I was exhausted all the time, and my family loved me, and they said to me, my husband and my kids said, "Do you realize how much Ambien you're taking?" And I think you're in the danger zone. And I'm Mrs. Green, so you know, coming public with that, I think it's really there's no shame on my part. It happened, and I did it, and I'm and I got help from a natural path to get past it. My life is better. My energy is back. You know, my 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 redhead is uh, on steroids, so my energy sometimes drives people crazy, but. What do you do, what do you say to people to help those they love when they see it? Who should they call? Do you have advice for listeners that are saying, I think it's my husband, I think it's my daughter? I mean, what can you tell to help guide people to help those they love who are addicted to opioids? Well, and the the point you make about Ambien, I think, is a good one. Just because it's not an opioid doesn't mean that it's not a dangerous medication. And we do need to be careful because if people start to steer away from opioids and think that something like Ambien is a safe alternative, Don't do it's it. not. Don't so do it. it's good that you bring that up. Yes. There, there are many, many medications that are potentially dangerous. Um, opioids, benzodiazepines, especially if you mix so them together. Bet, so when you say that long word, what, what would be a common over-the-counter name for, what, for that? Pill uh, Valium, Xanax. Oh. Okay. I took People one. often use that for sleep too. Got it. And um, it's as you get older, the metabolism of that is decreased. So you become the same dose that you took 
10 years ago suddenly is much stronger. And it really is dangerous to take in older patients because it predisposes you to falls and confusion. Bad, really bad, bad, bad. So what do you say to people to help those they love or if they have it, what, what should they do? How do you get help? I would start with your primary care doctor. Um, one important thing is to make sure that you have some physician that knows everything you take because you may have specialists right. who prescribe right. one thing. You may visit you know, your pain doctor who prescribe you something temporarily to help you sleep. Your primary care doctor, if you have surgery, may or might not know what medications that you've ended up on. So it's important to make sure that you, that you have one person that knows all of the medications you're taking and can look at the interactions. A pharmacist can help you with that too. Make sure that they, you know that those medications aren't going to be working together in a way that's gonna be harmful. So review your medications with a pharmacist or your primary care doctor. You know, for someone who's got a family member in this position, you know, maybe go to some of those appointments with them, help make sure that, you know, if especially if they're confused from some of the medications that they're taking, that the physician knows how this is impacting their life. Um, and worst case scenario, there's always things like Al-Anon. I mean, those are great resources for people. Just get help. You can't you can't right. control everything that other people do, but you can control how it affects your life. So, you know, and don't feel shame. Right. I mean, no. and when you approach them, be non-judgmental, be supportive, be loving. And almost every state has a website. If you Google substance abuse um, treatment in Arizona, I think it's it's called two one one Arizona dot org, and you can get information on where to go for treatment centers, support centers, specialists that can help you. I mean, I have just, I have been blown away by how fast the show has gone and what are the great content you have provided us. I'm very, very appreciative. And the beauty of the partnership with your company and TMC is that you do know what the patient's getting. It's a holistic approach to what's going on because you're partners with, you know, TMC. And I know that they, an integrated system of knowing the information. Everybody, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did and learned from it. January 18th, Leslie Waters talking about changing behaviors to reduce your electric bill and save energy. And on the 30th, Dana Fraz, founder and director of Food Shift with the Earth Island Institute. They're starting a revolution about food and we want to be a part of it. TMCAZ.com and OPATucson.com to find out more about these guests and the important information they provided. Thank you and make it a great green week.